Welcome, everybody. It's another Hollywood Godfather podcast, and tonight we're thrilled. I mean, you're, you, the audience, is going to be thrilled. When you hear this guy's story, I just heard bits and pieces of it, but I love a man who has a criminal mind. <laughs> but before we go introduce our guest, Pat, my co-writer, friend, and compadre on this podcast forever. How are you today, Hi, Pat? I'm, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm I'm just rocking, man. I can't believe what's going on, but it's all good. Thank God. All right. Well, we're uh, about to introduce our guest, but before that, I want to tell our subscribers who this person is. And uh, I mean, I've I've known Joe a while. We've been out of touch for a while, but uh, we first met quite a few years ago when uh, he was involved with some problems, which we're going to be talking about. But uh, he's he's led an amazing life, and let me. Let me just run run it down. His name is Joseph Acapinti. He graduated from Brooklyn College, where he earned a BA degree. He always wanted to go into law enforcement. In January 1969, he joined the U.S. Army Reserves, where for six years he served as a military policeman. In 1972, Joe was appointed as a Customs Patrol officer, where he was assigned to investigate international smuggling and organized crime. In 1976, Joe transfers to uh, INS. Uh, as a special agent where he became the country's foremost, one of the country's foremost experts on uh, ethnic organized crime. Me and Johnny know a lot about that. Anyway. <laughs> I made a career of it. <laughs> I know, but our, our ethnic organized crime starts with Italian, you know. But anyway, uh, Joe worked deep undercover and infiltrated a drug cartel that led to one of the largest cocaine seizures at that time. In 1984, Joe became the youngest agent to be promoted to chief of the New York uh, City Anti-Smuggling Unit. So here's where the trouble begins. In 1989, Joe initiated a multi-agency task force, Project Bodega, to investigate a drug cartel implicated in the uh, murder of uh, an NYPD police officer. His name was Buzak, and I remember the case very well. In retaliation, the cartel set up Joe on fabricated civil rights allegations that led to his prosecution, conviction, and imprisonment. However, due to public outrage, President George H.W. Bush granted Joe executive clemency on January 15, 1993. And on December 23, 2020, President Donald J. Trump granted him a full and unconditional pardon and a personal apology for Joe's injustice. In 1995, he established the National Police Defense Foundation, where he still volunteers as its executive director. Joe has been instrumental in exposing to national media many injustices against uh, officers. He also established the congressionally recognized Safe Cop Program that helps arrest and convict criminals who shoot at or kill a police officer. Joe's notoriety as a humanitarian is attributed to his Operation Kids Program, which arranges life-saving operations for children worldwide. He's been recognized for these efforts by the media, elected officials, state legislatures, foreign governments, including Pope Francis. Oh, wow. Joe served on the executive board. I'm not finished yet. (laughs) 
Joe served on the executive uh, on an executive board of several fraternal police organizations, which include the federal agents uh, PBA as president for 18 years. Today, Joe is considered one of the most decorated federal agents in the United States, credited with three attorney generals awards and 78 commendations for meritorious service and valor. Uh, so I, it's with great pleasure and honor that I introduced uh, Joseph Acapinti, uh to the show. Welcome, Joe. Pleasure is indeed mine. No, okay, I tell well, you, I have Joe. A question. I, I, I have a question. But what have you done lately? <laughs> I mean, you don't I need just... to do anything after that. <laughs> well, you know, in life, in life, it's important to leave your le legacy, especially for your family. So years from now, when my great great grandchildren uh, want to know a little about who Grandpa was, uh, they'll get a kind of an idea of who I was and, and what I stood for. Well, well I tell you, you and I, you and I met when you. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, when you first started having uh, problems. And I uh, I endeavored to help you out, as did a lot of people. And uh, uh, you're, you're an honored guest on this show of what you've accomplished and and what the federal government recognized to include two sitting presidents, uh, what, what your uh, contribution was to law enforcement in this country. But it wasn't always like that. You got raked over the coals by a very cleverly plotted uh, Mexican cartel or South American cartel, which was, was the Dominican cartel. Okay. I know I'd get it right. Eventually. Uh, a, 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 a cartel that endeavored to put you away literally for life. Well, that and, in uh, itself has got to be a story and a half. I mean, Oh yeah. Well, Joe, Joe has a book, uh, which has just been published called uh, framed. And the subtitle is I never stood a chance. And I urge everybody, I mean, what we're going to talk about uh, uh, now doesn't even touch uh, the, the the full scope of what this man went through. And I urge you to buy the book. Once again, it's called Framed. I never stood a chance. And we'll discuss that at the end. But Joe, start us off with uh, with you desiring to go into law enforcement. I mean, I've been there, but uh, uh, explain it to the, to the listeners. Well, it's somewhat of a funny story. I mean, my mom was a school crossing guard with the NYPD. We lived down the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And on payday, she would always bring us, bring me to the 5th Precinct. And I, I was treated there. like royalty. And from that day on, I said, I want to be an NYPD police officer. And that was my dream. And uh, and back in, in 30, 40 years ago, they had a special program that you're aware of called the police training program, where you can actually take the test, the physical at the age of 18, work in a civilian capacity, and then upon the age of 21, automatically be appointed as a police officer. So I was the first online, I took the test, I flew, I passed with flying colors. But when I went to the physical, there was one problem. I was the height requirement at that time was five foot seven. And I only measured five foot six. So everyone said, go to a chiropractor. He could stretch you. So I did. And I went to a chiropractor, but he only stretched me a half an inch. And I was still short a half an inch. Wow. So my dreams of being an NYP police officer uh, never materialized. However, uh, I always had unique uh, uh, 
interest in languages. I speak Italian and Spanish. And I found that the Treasury Department was hiring customs patrol officers uh, down the New York seaport and at, um, you know, in uh, the airports. And I applied. And lo and behold, they didn't have a, a height requirement. And I got appointed. Oh, before so, you go, before you go on, to something I wasn't aware of. Where on the Lower East Side did you live? Because that's where Johnny and I come from. Yeah, I lived on Madison Street, and I went to St. Joseph's uh, uh, near uh, Catron Street. Hi, and neighbor. And Nicobaca <laughs> Village. Yeah, yeah. We, that 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 was our area where Johnny and I grew up. I was on Mulberry Street. Went to yeah, I was on Blood. Elizabeth. I were in the right rich area. You were in the rich area. <laughs> <laughs> I live right next door to the Fifth Precinct. Amazing. Yeah, anyway. Elizabeth Street. So what happened is yeah. back then in the uh, in the fifties, uh, they were knocking down the tenements that were there uh, to rebuild it with city projects. And lo and behold, we got a notice to vacate, and my dad decided to go to the city projects in Sheepshead Bay, and that's basically where I lived to the age of twenty one in uh, the new Nostrand projects on oh. Avenue X in front of Sheepshead High School. But I opted, even though I lived right in front of uh, Sheepshead High School, I ended up deciding to go to Madison High because they had a, a an expanded language program that included Italian. So that that's what basically happened. I, I graduated. Uh, my father at the time, uh, we didn't we were, we didn't have the funds to send me to a full time college. So I literally took seven years for me to go to night school to get my degree. And I worked at the post office in Sheepshead Bay. But then, like I said, at the age of uh, 21, I found out about the customs job and I took it. That's great. And how long did you, how long were you in the customs job? I worked for customs for about five years. And uh, what I learned was very important. You know, oftentimes people hear about organized crime and their immediate reaction is traditional Italian organized crime. But that's far from being the truth. What I learned is uh, the different international crime syndicates, which basically is ethnic organized crime, uh, was was far more organized, but yet no one was fear, people in the Justice Department at that time was fearful to investigate these ethnic or organized crime syndicates, fearful that they might be labeled as racists. What was clear when I transferred to immigration, I, w- I was assigned basically in the Washington Heights area, which was predominantly Dominican. And it was there where really where I became one of the foremost experts on Dominican organized crime. And uh, and I learned the diversity of criminal activities that they basically were doing, you know, uh, with respect to to drug trafficking activity, Dominican organized crime were principally the uh, vendors for the uh, of cocaine and at that time crack uh, on behalf of the Colombian cartels. But it was so very. What exactly was your position? Did you go undercover? I was or a you... special agent, but yeah. then eventually I, I got a promotion. I was a senior special agent. And then what happened was uh, around in the early 80s, 
uh, they started to learn, you know, my name was getting out there because we were making some substantial arrests. I was focusing on the different travel agencies up there, which was the hub to facilitate human trafficking, uh, sale of uh, fraudulent documents, uh, almost Washington every Heights? kind of diversified criminal activity. You're talking you talk about Washington Heights? Yes, in Washington Heights. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so what happened is uh, eventually some of these kingpins approached me and, you know, attempted to bribe me. And at that point, you know, uh, you know, what I learned was in many foreign cultures, it's common practice in their country to attempt to bribe a public official. So they thought that maybe by bribing me, I would cease my enforcement efforts. But instead, I went to the FBI and I was assigned a very dear guy uh, uh, this of the FBI. He was the same age, young. We had a lot in common. His name was Phil Scala. And as you may know, Phil Scala later became the uh, group supervisor of uh, organized crime at 26 Federal Plaza. Mm. And what happened for basically three years, I worked undercover, posing as a corrupt government official, doing all kinds of destroying files on criminal aliens, actually smuggling in illegal aliens into the United States, all while this is taking place, being monitored by the FBI. And then it's a funny story. I stumble upon uh, a major kingpin, we'll call her Dulce, uh, who owns several travel agencies. And uh, we were getting ready to indict her. I had all the charts and all the evidences and the witnesses and the undercover tapes of our reformers who made buys from her. And then all of a sudden, the reception says to me, Joe, there's Dulce in the receptionist office who wants to see you. And lo and behold, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So I called the U.S. attorney's office. Well, she thought she, was, she thought, but you were undercover. She didn't know you were on the job, right? She knew I was undercover. The funny thing about it is, after someone would bribe me and they were arrested, I thought that would cease. But instead, they figured he didn't. The, they didn't give me enough money, that's and it, that's yeah. why I arrested them. <laughs> it was funny. So Dulce comes up, and I bring her into the room. And uh, this was escalated by the time with Rudy Giuliani, who was the U.S. attorney, and he said, "Look, why don't you monitor the conversation?" So I go into a little office. And the only thing I had available, we're talking within minutes, was a tape recorder. And I put it in the desk. And lo and behold, she came in and she very attractive. And she basically said, look, I know you're Italian. I know what you've been doing. And I know you're ready to uh, arrest me. And I would appreciate you listen to me. I can make you a very rich man. And I couldn't believe it. So I, I, I said, are you trying to set me up on bribery? I said, stand yeah. up, empty out your pocketbook. I, I I knew she was being sincere about the bribe. You reversed but I wanted it. To <laughs> reverse it. And then all of a sudden, I said, look, in law enforcement, I wouldn't do anything unless I have my partner. And uh, so what happened is we set up a meeting the next day. We went back. Rudy Giuliani at the time says, Joe, what do you think? I said, I, I think she's up there with 
in the, in the drug trade. And he said, I tend to agree. And for almost two years, I worked deep undercover, which included going to the Dominican Republic and meeting some of her Colombian drug lords. And as a result, we ended up making one of the largest cocaine seizures at that time. I believe it was in 1984, 1985. How much? The, the, at that point, my my boss and you probably know knew him Walter Connery. He was a oh yeah oh, yeah yeah I know. He, he promoted me to chief of the anti smuggling unit, which is the human trafficking. So how, how, much, how, young, much, how, how much cocaine? Me? How much cocaine? Uh, at that time, maybe it was a hundred hundred kilos. Yeah. I don't recall it such a long time, but back then it was. Yeah, was we, we didn't have the tons that we were having today. In any case, uh, I loved it. And I became, like I said, uh, uh, a young conscientious supervisor. And I started realizing that uh, immigration has unique powers. And I, and I knew all along that in these international drug cartels, whether you're a courier, you're drug, in the sex trade, whatever criminal activity you're permeating, it involves aliens. And that's my jurisdiction. So what we started to do uh, is we wanted to get involved in the war on drugs. Immigration wanted to. At first, my, my Washington was a little skeptical because immigration was probably one of the most underfunded agencies. It's a lot what we see today. The mere factor an immigration officer immediately you're a racist, politically incorrect. But we went to the airports. I hooked up with other agencies, Port Authority and DEA. And we were making literally kilos of seizures daily at LaGuardia, at uh, Port Authority bus terminal, at the Amtrak station. And it was so simple. We simply would approach them and they would uh, engage or they would not engage, but Eventually, I was able to distinguish that they were an alien, and then I put my immigration hat on, and uh, they were found to be illegal, or in many cases not carrying their green card, which is a misdemeanor violation. So we arrested them, and lo and behold, the search, incidental to arrest, resulted in these kilos of cocaine. It was very significant. So basically, everything was going good. Excuse me a moment. Then all of a sudden, October 18th, 1988, not one, but two New York City police officers are murdered within the same day, hours apart, on two separate incidents. Both engaged. One was police off, uh, the police officer. Uh, who was simply an undercover uh, making a buy. And the street Dominican agents knew there was the NYPD policy as an integrity test to see if you were a cop, asked you to sample it. And the officer declined to do it. His name was Christopher Holban. And as a result, they assassinated him. And uh, probably someone you knew, Captain Sal Blando of Manhattan oh, North. I know Sal very well. Yep. 
he called the uh, commissioner. The commissioner ended up speaking to Walter Connery and said, we need Joe Acapinti up there with his agents. And lo and behold, we eventually, uh, we eventually solved it, and identified who the killers were. One of the funny things about it is the, the, the per first person we were able to get, they were detaining at the police station, was insisting he wanted to be released. And uh, Blando asked me if I would interview him. So I, I went through my immigration scenario and I said, where are you from? He said, I'm American. I'm Puerto Rican. I said, oh, you're Puerto Rican. I said, uh, let me ask you a quick question. I have a little map here and I took out a piece of paper and I drew the island of San Juan. I said, I want you to put in the X where the train station is. And no the jerk, <laughs> no, he puts an X. And I said, wrong answer. There is no okay. train station okay. in San Juan. <laughs> You're Dominican. And I arrested him. We got his fingerprints. We, uh, we were able to confirm, in fact, he was a Dominican national. And we had him federally prosecuted for false claim to being a United States citizen. That's funny. It is a felony to falsely claim you're a U.S. citizen. But uh, uh, then, you know, eventually when we were successful, uh, I got the call about Michael Bushak. Michael Bushak was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. He uh, and his partner had a call to respond to an apartment building in Washington Heights. And uh, while he was waiting for the, it was an aided call, someone was sick, so they normally respond to those kind of calls, the PD. So while he's waiting for the elevator, unbeknownst to him, a drug ripoff had just occurred and the guys were walking down and one of the uh, uh, neighbors told him, be careful, you got the police down in the lobby. And that was Bushak. So Bushak was a smart streets, he was a street savvy cop who noticed that he was trying to hide something under his jacket. So when Bushak said, hey, you come over here, I want to ask you a couple of questions. The guy bolted and Bushak ran after him. And as a result, the guy turned around and shot and killed Bushak. Wasn't this the case where uh, Bushak... Uh uh, was basically killed during a, a combat reload? No, no, that not at all. That wasn't no. the case? All right, no, I'm thinking of another cop. Yeah. But uh, the funny thing about it is uh, uh, the, the actual killers were stopped running away by a street cop who had heard a 1013 go over the air. But when he grabbed the one guy, the guy said, no, no, I'm running to see you. Go, hurry, a policeman was shot, and the cop in the chaos let him go and went, and then realized later that was the bad guy. Yeah. But uh, we went, and I got to I gotta be honest with you. There is no greater experience to work with the detectives with the NYPD. I had the distinct honor of working with first graders uh, from the 3-4 squad, from a major case. Uh, in fact, the squad uh, supervisor was uh, who I gained a lot of respect for was Joe Resnick, who just retired as the chief of internal affairs for the NYPD, Joe Resnick. 
So as a result, we we solved the murder. But what I learned was the cartel that was implicated, who was the intended ripoff, ran a big major drug cartel out of a place called San Francisco de Macaris. So I pulled his files and I looked at it and I realized he himself got a green card by fraud. And I also learned that he was buying up grocery stores in Washington Heights called bodegas, where he was using them to facilitate his drug trade and other criminal activities. So I convinced uh, my uh, uh, bosses, even in Washington, that we should create Project Bodega. And I put together a multi-agency task force with about maybe eight or nine different agencies. NYPD, we had representatives from postal inspectors, DEA, uh, customs. It was a task force. And as a result, in what started, I believe, in in August or September of 1989, we started Project Bodega and started to investigate all these bodegas from this crime lord. And uh, we'll just call him by the name Freddy. And as a result, uh, we were making seizure after seizure, arrest after arrest. And we were basically, like they're saying, rocking and rolling. (laughs) Washington, D.C. was very happy. We were basically doubling our statistics. Uh, All of a sudden, I find out that the cartel was putting together a plan to frame me. I didn't know about it at the time. They first were thinking of killing me, but then realized that would only bring more federal lead on them. So the uh, in-house counsel for the drug cartel, who was a former assistant United States attorney, said, no, let's set him up on federal civil rights. Let's say that he's violating our rights. Okay, Joe, uh, let's let's just pause here for a second. Johnny, it's the time for our uh, a commercial our sales right. pitch. All right, please. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. We know where you live. Corleone Vodka on March 9th was picked as the best vodka for martinis in the world by the Rob Report. By calling 518-713-4050 or 518-220-9463, it could be shipped directly to your house. The finest vodka in the world by Rob Report. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. I'm happy to say Hollywood Godfather, Rob Ography is now playing on most platforms. Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music. Listen to Joel Ortiz, famous rapper, and Arsenic the Heat record, multi-platinum producer for Sony. Produce this record, I'm proud of it. There's 12 tracks, you gotta listen to this. 
You never know who you're lying in a room with So I broke a broomstick in half and let it groove with The concrete in the bathroom floor It had a new tip stashed it behind the toilet In case I ever had to use it Alright, we're back I have a question, Joe Just before we went to the break You said how you put this organization together With different divisions of law enforcement How many different divisions And who was really funding this Because earlier on You said you had no budget so me being a layperson, this seems like a major operation that did a, a lot of damage. And at that time, my next question is, were you, were you able, like they do now, seize and like the RICO Act and get the assets to refund what you're doing through that or not? Yes, normally, let me, let, you're absolutely right. First of all, immigration was the poorest agency within the Department of Justice. We had no money. But what we did have was the caliber informants. Uh, many of them were not interested in the money. They wanted the ability so we can help them and a family member legalize their status. And you have that ability, if you and, and it's relevant today, if you are helping and you're a government informant, you can get a special visa or extensions. So in the case of Project Bodega, believe it or not, we didn't need no funding because it was very simple. We got a lead. We had, let's say, 12 bodegas that we thought or we had intelligence that uh, they were involved in drug trafficking. And I would go in and I would identify myself I would speak Spanish and I would tell them that a very serious allegation has been made against them, that they're engaged in drug trafficking and that they're employing illegal aliens. I used a technique that was taught to me by the government called the Reed School of Interviewing. It teaches you, you don't be a tough guy. You come in like a nice guy with empathy. So what I did is I went in and my agents did, and we basically presented them with an allegation. And we would say we would like any cooperation. Was the allegations true? Of course, no one's going to say they're involved in drug trafficking. So many of them, the majority of them, in fact, said, no, it's not true. And at that point, you say, do we have your consent to search? And at that point, they actually signed a consent to search form which was in the Spanish language. And within five minutes, we ended up finding the contraband. Oh, wow. And that's basically- How so it, they were. <laughs> so, so at that point, word was around what we were doing. We had customs. Customs was very much interested because there was a serious increase of uh, uh, Middle East grocery stores, in addition to the Dominican grocery stores. And the ATF was very much interested in the guns that were being sold. We had a uh, drug enforcement administration, who, in fact, we seized the monies and we turned the monies over to them. We had postal, postal inspectors. We were finding stolen mail. We were finding... Uh, uh, food coupon fraud. We were finding food stamp fraud. 
almost all kinds of uh, uh, crimes we were uh, uncovering. Uh, we had ATF because many of them were convicted felons in possession of guns. Uh, we had the IRS involved, who was working in tandem, believe it or not, with the DEA because they were looking at the income tax evasion aspect of drug trafficking. So it was so good that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office asked us to be a part of their asset task force, asset forfeiture task force, and assigned me three ADAs to process, to process our Project Bodega arrests. Wow. One of which, believe it or not, was John F. Kennedy Jr. Oh, wow. Who worked for me. Really? And he was a great guy. Yeah. He was a great guy. And in my book, I, I, I do a little comedy, but it was a true story. One day, John Kennedy looks at me and he says, uh, uh, you look depressed. And I said, yeah, my wife, Angela, is going to kill me. I was supposed to have dinner with another couple. And this marks probably the third dinner I had to cancel. So I said, I, I don't have the courage to call her and let her know. <laughs> and he said, get her on the phone. I'll talk to her. Maybe she knows who I am. She might give you a pass. Hello. <laughs> and uh, it's funny that he calls her and he said, hi, Angela. Hi, I'm on. I'm John F. Kennedy Jr. And she's saying, yeah, yeah, where's my <laughs> husband? What's going on? And he said, well, look, we made a, an important arrest. Joe's pro and, and believe me, it was frustrating him because she did not believe who he was. And eventually... Uh, he handed me the phone. He says, I see why you don't want to call her. And uh, he was just a, such a nice guy that I said, do me a favor. Will you write a nice little note to my three daughters? And he did. He wrote a lovely note. It was a nice guy. I have framed and I have in my house. He was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in essence, in response to your answer, uh, it was basically no cost to anyone. And that's why immigration in Washington loved it because they weren't spending any money. It was just a matter of having multi-agencies. Each agency was happy. They were getting their st statistics. Uh, on our first bodega hit that we have, uh, another funny story, I, I go in, I introduce myself, I go through this scenario, and I notice the guy's wearing a shoulder holster. And I said, I hope you have a permit for that. And he says, uh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I need to see the permit. And he's thinking, and he's thinking, I said, look, we have two options. You show me the permit, or I'm going to have to arrest you and process you for felony gun possession. So he said, okay, it's in the safe. So he gives us permission, signs the form. He opens up the state safe. And what do we find? Over I think it was $275,000 in drug proceeds. Oh my which, of God, course, you see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he should have took, took the arrest. How smart he was. Took the arrest. So that even empowered us even more because on the first two, three operations, we were making all kinds of seizures. It was good. Oh, yeah. But there was a problem. Joe Acapinti didn't see a problem. And this led to the other segment. Well, what I found out 
was that the Dominican Federation, which was the political front for the Dominican drug cartel that I was investigating, had strong political contacts in City Hall. And he, he, he misrepresented to the mayor that Project Bodega was violating the civil rights of hardworking merchants not engaged in criminal activity. And as a result, Dinkins pushed for a federal civil rights. Well, those, those, of, those of our listeners who don't know who Dinkins was, he was, he was our, our first black mayor uh, back in, in, in the 80s. And uh, he was one of our worst mayors. He, he destroyed the city. Uh, anyway, and he destroyed you almost. Oh, it was Dinkins. Wow. Yeah, Dinkins. Yeah. But uh, uh, I got to be honest with you. In the book, I could be burned once, but I'm not going to be burned twice because many of the people, I did change the names of many of the characters simply because it's regardless whether it's 30 years ago, they still have the power of retribution. And I run uh, the National Police Defense Foundation, which is a regulated by the federal government we're a 501c3 so you know i i changed i changed the names of the characters but the point was that's what happened i was very naive not to believe the political power possessed by foreign drug lords in the united states that's that's amazing yeah but the other thing is like you wrote the book now when you should be retiring and not looking behind or over your shoulder. And you're saying that some of these names probably could be figured out who they really well, are. <laughs> they probably are. But let the reader go ahead. And I'm sure it's Googled and it's, uh, it's public information. Because anything that I wrote in the book, uh, I have a copy here, is the front lines of the newspapers that shows New York Post, The Framing of a Cop by Mike McAlary, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Cartel used system to bring down an innocent agent. Did the lawyer set up and target a setup of Acapinti? Well, that's another point. As I mentioned, the cartel had an in-house attorney who was a former assistant U.S. attorney. And what we learned from a credible informant that not only was he the in-house counsel, but he was actually involved in the drug trade. He was house counsel. Yes. And the informant we had, who was a registered NYPD employee, informant worked in the law office and she she told me and she revealed what happened she was the one who overheard them talking about setting me up on federal civil rights uh at first i took it with a grain of salt because i would i said come on i i was a federal agent i worked in this particular judicial district I can't believe it. No, no. Federal prosecutors above it. I don't see it. 
And she said, you calling me a liar? I said, no, no, but what evidence do you have? She said, well, I have actually the names, the docket numbers of each person who got a favorable disposition. Plus, if you don't believe me, put a wire on me and I'll go in and I'll get them on tape engaged in the drug trafficking activities. I said, wow. Why didn't you do that? <laughs> I, hold on. So I go back to my boss, Walter Connery. You got to realize he was in charge of the Internal Affairs Bureau with the NYPD. That was his job to expose corruption. Right. He says, Joe, what do you want to do? I said, I want to I want to work it. I said, I want to call the project. I want to call the investigation Project Esquire. He said, well, you know what you got to do. So I called the uh, judicial district the chief of the criminal division, and I present the case there. And he says, who is the, he said, who have you spoken about, about this case? And I said, well, I spoke to Mr. Connery and a couple of my agents. He said, I don't want you to talk to anyone. I want to personally debrief this informant and have her bring whatever evidence she has. Now, in the federal government, when you do a sting operation, an undercover investigation, you cannot do it unless you have authorization and permission from the judicial district. So a week passed, two weeks passed, and I said, and Connery would say to me, what's happening on Project Esquire? I said, I'm waiting for the word from the U.S. attorney to authorize it. So eventually I called and I spoke to the chief of the criminal division. And I said to him, what's the status? He said, we can't do the case. And I got mad. I said, what do you mean we can't do the case? He said, client attorney privilege. I said, look, client attorney privilege, I understand, because she works for an attorney's office. But if you're engaged in crimes, that client attorney privilege has no bearing. So he must he have said, been on the payroll. <laughs> I'm not making that comment. But, but, uh, one of the allegations that, that was set forth was that this cartel, Freddie, was having sex and drug parties for certain federal prosecutors. So that was an element of it. And I, so I couldn't go forward. I went to the FBI. The FBI wanted to do the investigation, and the supervisor later told me, we can't do it either. They're refusing to do it. Wow. So what I learned through the grapevine was a year prior to me going, they arrested a federal prosecutor for stealing coke. FBI made an arrest of a federal prosecutor in that judicial district for stealing cocaine. And here comes Joe Acapinti with another potential scandal. Plus, so I surmise that together with Dinkins, knowing the type of investigator I was, they said, let's present the evidence to the grand jury. And lo and behold, out of 70 some odd officers that were on the search, I was the sole defendant. What were you charged with exactly? 
conspiracy to commit uh, conspiracy to vo- federal civil rights violations. Was also, this- false statements. Because they said every time in my investigative report, when I said that on such and such a date, a consensual search resulted in X, Y, and Z seizure, they're saying that was not, uh, uh, that was a false statement because it wasn't consensual. These people that they presented before the grand jury, which totaled about seven of the bodega people, were either related by family, brothers, or members of the executive board of the Federation. So they're not going to say a thing no matter what. Let me, Joe, uh, was this the first time this has happened to a federal agent? It is a landmark case. What what ended up happening, what ended up happening is it's the bad guys, which I call them, who testified before the grand jury, purged themselves that they were law-abiding. That was the first step. We we proved, as you will hear, several times they weren't law-abiding. They were engaged in criminal activities. Hold that thought, Joe. Hold that thought, thought because I know we're running out of time. Would you like to do another episode with us? Sure. All right. I'm going to say goodnight to our people right now and tune in next week because we told you this is going to be amazing guests. Yeah, I mean, this is just the first half. Now he's got a serious problem here. Yeah, but not Uh, only that. I, I like the fact, just because of my criminal mind, of the corruption on the level of this corruption. Oh, yeah. You're talking about mayors, head of departments. You're talking about the whole judicial system is caught up in this. Caught up, and also I think they just didn't care about him. Well, no, there was too many people. I'm saying they gave him up as the scapegoat, let, let us, leave us alone. That, you know, it's always a feather in a prosecutor's hat to lock up a cop. You know, I, I've been I've been close, not as close as Joe. He went he went the whole route. He got convicted, but I mean I I've been under investigation. It was in it was in the papers. It was you know, we're going after an NYPD lieutenant. Giuliani was the guy. So I I mean I I can understand uh, why they went after him, but after a while it becomes like a snowball effect. Yeah. And uh, you know they 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 had to get him and they got him. And we're, we're leaving this this episode at a very uh, important time because now is when you're looking at a seriously life-altering situation here, which we're going to deal with in the second episode. Joe, this has been a hell of a story. Thank you for sharing it well, with thank us. Thank you, Joe. Far. I mean, you're probably the most interesting guest and the most important guest, not not <laughs> to diminish back. who the other people were, celebrities and all that, but these stories, I mean, you can't write them, and you lived it, no, unfortunately. I mean, I, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't make this stuff up if I was writing a a, a friggin' novel. So it's to our amazing. audience, be patient. Tune in next week, and you're going to hear the second half, or maybe even the third half. <laughs> but thank it, you. We'll be right back next week, everybody. Have a good week, and Hollywood Godfather podcast, another great story. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Pat. We'll be back next week. Yeah, have a have a good night. Good night.
If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but Thank just you call for tuning me. in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Horan, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you'd like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night.